So this morning I want to um, continue our series. Last week we started in the Gospel of John, and uh, one of the four Gospels, the, the one that's different, I should say, is uh, the other ones are called the Synoptic Gospels. They have similar stories, and John has a little bit of a different look, but always uh, all four of those things co- combined, always collecting into one story of Jesus and how he walked on this earth, what he came to do, his purpose. And we entitled our series simply Jesus, mostly because I want you, as we go through this, this book together, to just see Jesus, to see his simple message, to see his, his simple calling, his simple purpose for why God sent, his simple way he taught. And, and I want to say like complex way he taught, yes, his parables, some things are hard to understand, but just to look at Jesus, this is who we celebrate when we come to worship on Sunday morning. He is, we learned last week, the word, the light of the world. We want to elevate him in our worship. We want to elevate him and his word, the Bible. And so I always say those are the two things that we are passionate about, real hope, Jesus and the Bible. And he himself is God's word revealed to us. So we find ourselves at the um, kind of the middle section of chapter 1 today before Jesus calls his first disciples. And we'll move through this text um, and uh, really just trust that God would open your heart. If you have a Bible, I'll be reading from John 19 through 34. It'll be on the screen. It's uh, uh, reading these things as narrative, Jesus's life, and we'll talk about what's going on here. And there's much that's going on here as we are introduced to, for the first time, John the Baptist. This is what it says in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had seen, or they had been, sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who, of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I want to have you pray. I always invite you to do that. We look at God's Word, and uh, no, this is not just a I've said this before, it's not just a pattern of the scriptures in church. When we read them, we pray. This is what I believe you ought to do when you read the Bible. Uh, When we come to the Bible, we want human understanding. I really think it's important. What we affirmed before we read it is that you say, God, none of this is going to make sense 
unless he makes sense of it for me. So that's what you're asking God to do right now, and I will ask collectively for us together. So you pray, I'll pray, and then we'll look at God's word together. Let's do that now. Father, I truly desire that we would know you through your word this morning, that we would turn off all the things we're thinking about and all the things we're thinking ahead in for later today and thinking um, all the things that we know already happened this morning and maybe we come in here frustrated or stressed. Maybe we come in here fearful or anxious. Maybe we come in here joy-filled and just things are going really well in our life. Father, wherever we're at, We know that your word is powerful and it can cut right to our heart and speak to us. And so open our hearts by your spirit that we would see Jesus revealed in who he was, who who he said he was. Father, what he came to do. Help us to see what John saw in his life. And Father, we praise you and we thank you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. I love, this is going to surprise you, to be the center of attention. I'll let that soak in for a minute. I've always loved that. I've always loved being the center of attention. I am an extrovert. I love people. I don't mind being in a room full of people where people are looking at me. For many of you, that feels uncomfortable. Uh, It's probably one of the reasons that I, while I'm uncomfortable up here, I don't mind that about myself. But I would challenge you, maybe you say, well, I don't relate, I'm not that way, I'm shy, I'm introverted. You too love being the center of attention. You just do it a different way. Because being the center of attention is in our DNA. It's in our sinful, fallen humanity. All of us, no matter how that fleshes itself out with you, we are all very self-centered, look-at-me people. Whether you do that in the way of maybe the way I do that, and I'll, I'll front this in some ways, Probably, as I have been through all my therapy in life, um, people that do that a lot have great insecurities. I have no doubt great insecurities about myself. And people that often do that, like, cover themselves in different ways. And a lot of that's through humor. And then there's people over here who don't like being the center of attention. They're more introverted, more in the background. But sometimes, even in that, self-pity, which is not good, can drive us to want people to just pay attention to us because we lack confidence. So this spectrum is actually very similar but it's all rooted and linked to our heart. We're selfish, prideful people. When we come into a relationship that God wants us to have, we say, God, this is about me. And God, through the whole Bible, says, no. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about my son. And that's who I want you to see. And so when we read this story that we're diving into, this account, we meet for the first time John the Baptist. And he, at least in the moment, is the center of attention. He is the one that everyone is looking at. And we would love to think that this is about John the Baptist, this little section, but it's not at all. And John the Baptist realizes that in his life, and so we can learn. John the Baptist had every, every, every opportunity to say, look at me. People were asking him, they were coming to him, and he doesn't. He said, this is who I am, this is who Jesus is, and I want everybody to see him as the center. I want him to be the one. And so I think we can learn about ourselves through the life of John the Baptist. Four things, at least, that we see in this text, but four things I want to show you that he sees who Jesus is. In John 1, there are a ton of names for Jesus mentioned, a ton of them, and they all have purpose. 
But in this text, John sees four titles of Jesus. Three very clear titles that you can see. One not written, but I'll show you is there. And he says, I can do these, I can see these four things about Jesus, and I need to respond to them in four ways. It's because John saw Jesus these four ways. We can, he, we can hear these things and see the example that he sets for us as we try to see Jesus clearly. Now, John the Baptist is not the author of the book of John. That was the apostle, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, the one in the inner circle. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. So Zechariah and Elizabeth had him when Elizabeth couldn't conceive, and he was the one we read about in Isaiah. He was the voice that prophesied making way for Jesus to come. And so what we see, and I'll give you this context here so we understand what's happening. We can kind of frame this and make sense of it. John is in Bethany, or on the outskirts, or around Bethany, if you will, in the Jordan River. And that's where all of this scene that we read about is taking place. He is baptizing people in this way of, I'm not the one, there is someone coming greater than me. And so all of this is happening across Bethany in the Jordan River. And verse 28 tells us that if you skip ahead. And so that's where John is. And in verse 19, we see that the Jews have sent priests and Levites, priests, those who are the highest in the church, Levites, those past. So this is the church, the Jewish people, sending, sending, there's great irony here. They're sending people from Jerusalem to say to John, who are you? We don't get what you're doing. This is like church people when you see God working somewhere else, like what's going on? There's a lot of competition here, apparently, by the way that they're approaching this situation. This isn't a, we're concerned that you're a false teacher, although they would have argued that, but they say, who are you? Like, what's going on? Which is ironic because they should know because the scriptures have told them. And here's what John does. The game of 21 questions begins, and it's really just two main questions. They want to know who he is, and they want to know why he's baptizing, what he is doing. And so John answers in verse 20, and it's pretty telling right away. It says, he confessed. Look at that language there. And did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, did they ask him if he was the Christ? They didn't. He just fronted it. He knew what they were coming for, and he didn't try to, like, explain that all. He just said, I'm not the Christ. We learn here in the first title that John saw Jesus as the Christ. Now, this is important to note. Because Christ, or Christos, is the Greek of the Hebrew for Messiah. And what was the Messiah? The Messiah, to the Jewish people, was the anointed one or the chosen one. That was who Israel professed about, or God said to Israel, this is one who's coming, the true chosen one. He's not just a prophet. They had had many prophets. Those were not the chosen one, which is why they asked him about Elijah or prophet. Like, are you one of those? And John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who was anointed for a specific mission because that's what the Messiah was. That's what made the Messiah different from all the other prophets. He was anointed as the chosen one for special purpose, to save people, to save God's people. And so all of those that prophesied about that, John jumps right at him and says, I am not this guy, the chosen one, the anointed one. I'm not him. So if you're thinking that I'm him, you're wrong. John had every moment, you have to see this, he had every moment to seize that and say, look at me. 
I am. We see this fleshed out in our culture all the time with ourselves, but especially people, preachers, TV evangelists, you name it, that want all the glory. And John just shucks it right off of himself right away because he saw that Jesus was the Christ. And when you see Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one with purpose, you also recognize that's not your purpose, which means you must have another purpose and calling, which John recognized about himself. He knew he had his own calling. He knew he had his own purpose from God. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do because God had shown him. God had told the people that we read from in, in Isaiah, he said, there is one coming that will prepare the way for the Lord. He is just a voice in the wilderness. We know about John. You can read about, read about him in Matthew 3. There's a more descriptive sense of who John the Baptist is, this wild, long-haired dude eating honey and locusts. He's this guy in the wilderness, and he has one purpose and calling. It's to be a voice for Jesus. So he recognizes that he doesn't want any of the focus to be on him. He makes sure he tells people he is not the Messiah, and he makes sure that he shows people he has a different calling. He, like you and I, have a purpose. We are a voice. We are a witness. We cannot save ourselves. We can point to the one who can. And how easy it is for us to want attention, back to our self-centered, center of attention way. We love that about ourselves, even, and I confess this, even in ministry. My wife and I were just talking about this. It is so easy for us in the church to say, look what I did. It is so easy for me to stand up here, and when you say, hey, that's a great sermon, which most of you don't say that, I'm just kidding. Some of you do say that, and it would be really easy for me to go, yeah, it's because I'm a really eloquent orator. <laughs> I had to practice saying those two words together, so you know that's not true. It's so easy. You even look at the sons of thunder, we call them, James and John, different John. And they, in the Gospels, are talking to Jesus, the Son of God. And they say, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand? Because we think we're special. What is that all? Like, their mom. If you, like, you want to talk about a mom that, like, who hasn't cut the apron strings? James and John's mom. She thought this was a good idea, too. They wanted to sit. They wanted, even in glory, can we just be, like, there? Because we were a big part of this ministry? John the Baptist sees Jesus as the Christ. He says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Like, this is not what that's about. This is not, we don't do anything unless God himself works through us. We are nothing. We see this over and over in Jesus' teachings. John is going to use this language later in chapter 3 when he says, he needs to increase. I need to decrease. And so John is pointing all this away, and they keep pressing, and they say, well, who are you then? In verse 21, Elijah the prophet, he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? And look at this language in verse 22. This is so important. They said, we need to know. We need you to give an answer to, to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? It says, it doesn't say you need to prove yourself. It's interesting, and you find this in verse 24. They need to know the Pharisees are they, they've been sent out, say, who is this guy that's messing around in the river? Find out who he is. And they say, I can imagine as they said that, we're nervous. We need to know who you are because, because like we have this church and religion and thing that we're like, this, we need to protect this and then you're invading that. And, and, and it says in verse 24, they, they've been sent by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In many ways, you can start to see this whole thing unfold. They're the hypocrites of the church in this way because they've seen the prophecy. 
This is the man that they've been waiting for to show the real, true man, Jesus. And they've missed that from Isaiah, as if these, they're just totally blind, which is important to know. They are totally blind, oblivious to this, that John has come only as the red carpet. He says, I'm the one who you need to know comes before the one who you really need to know. John knew he was just the red carpet to Jesus. He knew that, and he said, I want you to know, like, you're missing the, the real person you need to see and know if you're missing me. Like, I'm just a voice that's preparing what Jesus is going to do here, but they still have questions. So he denies that. He takes all the glory off of himself, and, he, and they say, well, Lord, what are you doing baptizing me then? And this is where it gets interesting and where we have to really dive into the text because John's answer is, is quite interesting. When they say, why are you baptizing in verse 25? If you are neither the Christ, the chosen one, or Elijah, which is the prophet, or any prophet, and John answers this in verse 26, I baptize with water. So I'm doing this as a symbolic revelation of what's to come, but among you stands one you do not know. Among you, your people, there is one coming that's going to do something greater. Now, if you want to look at the in-depth version of this, if you will, what Jesus, he says more about that in Matthew 3, of he's going to come and baptize with fire. He tells us that in this text, going to deliver the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is the next thing that John says. Because John has this calling and purpose, just like the Messiah, but he also sees Jesus not just as the Messiah, but he sees him as something different in verse 27. He says, the one after me is the one whose sandal I am not worthy of untying. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Here's the one that I told you you might not see as much in the title of Jesus. And for this to be under, understood, we have to go back to the Old Testament. There was this practice, if you will, this levirate law that we see in Deuteronomy 25. So if you have your Bible, we can turn back there. It'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy 25, there's this practice and this custom, if you will, uh, this halaza, right, this custom that, that they went through regarding marriage. When someone's brother died, that brother was supposed to be the redeemer of, that, of his wife, that, that widow, in order that the name, the family seed would continue. This is what Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 says. It'll make sense to you as much as we can here. It says, if brothers dwell together... And one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. So they want to keep the, the line moving here. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, and the name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall come to him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's, this is where we're getting into this here, you'll understand, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal of his foot and spit in his face. That does not sound good, but that's what he does. And she shall answer and say, so shall be done to the man who does not build up my brother's house and the name of the house shall be called in Israel. The sandal here is the key. It's weird, I know. And you probably were wondering why I was wearing sandals, because that 
is what was happening. I didn't have the one with the straps all the way high, but I think that's the ones they used to wear. This is weird. It's a weird custom. So, so this, this, this husband dies, and the brother is supposed to take her as his wife so he can carry the family seed. But if he doesn't want to do that, this is the ritual by which they perform. He takes his sandal off. He's saying, I do not want to marry her. And he has to take his sandal off. It's a visible symbol for the elders to see. And he is refusing his right to marriage. He's saying, I'm not the one. I don't want to. I don't want to marry her. Perhaps you can see this a little more. Flip a a couple pages ahead to the book of Ruth. Some of us know this story. We know the story of Ruth is Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. We see that Ruth is a widow, and we see that that this man, this great man of faith comes along, and he restores her. He brings about this redemption to her and this family line, but Boaz was not the first one in line to do that. Look at chapter 4 with me. This is when Boaz, Ruth, has, Naomi has told Ruth that, that this is the man that's going to redeem you. God has like shown this to me, and, and this is what's going to happen, but there's this other person in the way, and these guys were all about well, the next in line, the next of kin, in following this, this law. And says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, so this is someone different than Boaz, the first in line of Boaz who had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. I want to talk to you about our little situation. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders, witnesses to the city, and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to your relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell of you, you of it and say, Buy it. Boaz is saying this to this guy who's next in line. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, the elders and the witnesses, the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, and there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz is setting himself up as next. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, so this guy has agreed, right? The day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, there's a catch. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, which he should have known, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Stop here. So Boaz says, there's this land. Naomi's come back. You need to redeem it. You need to buy it. To which he says, like most of us, land. I'll do that. Yeah, I'll buy it. He says, oh, there's a catch. You got to take the woman too. Then you get to verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Very self-centered, right? Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So now he says, I don't want to do it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel coming concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, And he gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead of his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the state of the native place. You are witnesses to this day. Now here you sit, 
wondering why I'm wearing sandals, why I have one in my hand, and why is this the custom? And not only that, what does it have to do with John the Baptist? That was the custom. You and I do not buy cars or houses this way anymore. We do not do this in our marriages, but that was the custom of the day. And so they were to give this sandal. If this this guy's not redeeming, he is giving it away, and he is saying this. Listen close. He is saying, I am not the groom. I'm not the groom. I am not the groom. I'm going to take this one off because I'm on level here. I am not the groom. I am forfeiting my right to be married to this person. And the sandal is the key. The sandal is the key that you have to see. Even though John the Baptist comes first, this is what he says. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not unworthy to untie. He says in this way, Jesus is the one with the sandals. He is the bridegroom. He is the one that will come for his people, the church. He is the true groom. John says, I'm not going to take his sandal off because he is the groom. He's the one wearing the sandals. He is the one that will redeem his people. When you see the beauty of how God has like just unpacked these really weird customs and then full circle to Jesus, he stands there and John says, for two reasons. Most of us see that as John was unworthy as a servant, and he was. He talks about that in Matthew 3. But there is a deeper meaning, as always in the Bible there is. John is saying, I wouldn't take his sandal off because he's the true groom. People thought John was there as in this way, the bridegroom, and he shucks all this center of attention, this glory, and says, no, you need to see what I see. And so John sees Jesus as the Christ, but he also sees him as the bridegroom, as the one who is coming for his people, the one who will marry the church, if you will, the one whom Jesus died for to prepare us as beautiful and righteous by his blood. We just sang about that. We are washed and ready to be married. And you see this in Revelation in 16 and 19, this marriage supper of the groom and the, the lamb and his people. You see this marriage happening between those who Jesus bought with his blood, the church, and himself. Jesus is the bridegroom. You see that right here in Scripture. And we find this hope that he will call the church home. And John says, look, you need to see who he is. He is the Christ, and he is the true bridegroom for the church. But he is also something else. The very next day in verse 29, he says, he sees Jesus coming, and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, here's the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. I know this is my job, what I'm supposed to do. He is the true groom. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, take it off, any of that. And not only that, but as he sees him, he says something very profound in this next, this third title. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, he saw as the Lamb. John's declaration that Jesus came with one purpose, why he was the anointed one, why he was the Messiah, the chosen one, to die for sin and atone for sin once and for all. And this has everything to do with an Old Testament understanding of sacrifice. There was always a need. We saw it even at the video we looked at last week. And sin in our space 
We're not going to show it now, but there's a Bible Project video. If you want to dive deeper, you should write that down into the explanation really good of the Old Testament sacrifice. We just don't have as much time to see it today. But it's this idea that there was always needing to be a sacrifice of an animal, always needing to be bloodshed to atone for sin. And it was that perpetual thing that needed to happen for sin to be atoned for. Priests would continue to do that. And Jesus shows up and John looks at him and says, this is the lamb. He's going to do something that no priest has been ever to, able to do in those animal sacrifices. He's going to take sin away once and for all. In that system, priests could take away sin, but they couldn't do it once and for all. And John says declaratively, he is the lamb who is taking away the sin of the world. It's going to be finished. He came with purpose as the chosen one, the true bridegroom that was going to take his people to shed his blood for him. And by that blood, that's finished work that your sin is gone. If you trust in him as the saving, as the savior, as the lamb, as your Lord, the need for that salvation, and that's the spirit opening your eyes to that, John says he's going to take away sin. He's defeated it at the cross. He's risen against it. It's gone forever. He's the one. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's what John sees him as, this Lamb of God that once and for all it's finished. He sees him as the sacrifice for his sin. John recognizes his need for Jesus. He certainly recognizes everyone else's need, which is why he was baptizing in the river. John, and you can see this in Matthew 3. I want to reference that again. John is saying, I have a message. It's repentance and God's judgment. He's saying repent and God will judge. And Matthew 3 unpacks that a lot more. He says, we're sinful. That's why we need to turn to God in repentance. There is judgment for sin. There is wrath, God's wrath that will need to be satisfied. The only thing that will do that for you is Jesus and his blood. All of your self-centered attention, all of the ways that you think God is unfair, all of the ways that you think you could form your own little salvation system to save yourself, all the good that you've done, all the things that you say, well, I'm a pretty good person, so I think God will be happy with me. John says, no. Unless you see Jesus as the Christ, with his purpose, come and save, unless you see him as the bridegroom, he's the only way that will, that the only one that will call his children home to himself in the future eternity, and it is only by his blood and his sacrifice at the cross that you have to believe in and turn to and seek God in and be desperate for and cry out to that you will understand that. As the Christ, as the bridegroom and the Lamb of God, but John also saw Jesus a fourth way. And it says it at the end of our text, John saw Jesus as the Son of God. Look at what he says in verse 30 on. I'm just going to read this. He says, This is of whom I have said, After me, and this is a reference to earlier in chapter 1, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And he says this, I myself did not know him. Just John is saying, I didn't, like, I didn't know who it was going to be. I wasn't even aware of this. I didn't have a relationship with him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John knows he's just a vehicle of this. And John bore witness and he says this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Because that was a sign God said to be. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, God or the Holy Spirit, that's who John is referencing there, to baptize with water, said to me, God revealed his sign here, he on whom you see the Spirit descending remain 
This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the one you want. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In John's statement in verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John was able to do that because Jesus has, was the sign fulfillment for John. John was led by the Spirit, and you have to think of it backwards in this way, and God told John by his Spirit, the one whom you see the Spirit descend on and remain, that's the one. That's the Son of God. And, and God shows himself through this way and reveals Jesus to John. As if John knew his purpose, he knew his calling, he knew he wasn't the one, he was able to shed that and show people, here's the lamb, here's the one, this has got to be him. He looks at him and he says, it is him, because God showed me it was him, it was his sign and his seal. There he is. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John, in humble repentance, I'm sure, in this moment, and we see allusions of this in verse 27 and verse 30, he knew he was unworthy. When you meet the Son of God, that's what you find out. That's why John, this, this whole gospel is highlighting Jesus as the Son of God, not the person. Luke's gospel reveals Jesus more as in humanity. John's gospel is more, this is divine, this is God. And when John sees God, there is nothing else that we could see when we really truly meet God than to respond with humility and repentance. Because we know we're not God. All our self-centeredness, all of our natures, when you meet the Son of God, you become less. And again, John uses that language later. We see in verse 27, he knew he's unworthy. He's just, I can't, in the servant way, untie his sandals for that reason, but there was more depth to that. In verse 30, he ranked behind Jesus. John continues to say this. I'm not him. And he does this with humble repentance. He does this with this humility, this great humility. So what can you and I in this text, learn about John the Baptist's interaction. These four names, we can learn how to respond in our own life because our life calls for a response. Number one, just as the Messiah has calling and purpose, which we need to see his calling and purpose, you and I have a different calling and purpose. It is simply to bear the witness to Jesus, to point at him through our lives. That's your and I mission in life is to be a voice and a testimony of Jesus. Jesus' calling, his anointing, was the Messiah. It was with specific purpose to come and save and redeem Israel. He was the Redeemer. John was not. John knew, like we ought to know, our job is to highlight Jesus in our lives. When we want all the attention on ourselves, our job is to step back and say, no, like I want you to see Jesus. When people come to you and say, look at you, good job. How do you deal with life? How like you... Like, you have this joy in you when you struggle and life's not fair to you. And are you showing Jesus to people? Or are you saying, yeah, like, I just, I've been in counseling a couple times and I just learned how to cope. And, or like, I'm just really, I'm good. I'm a good person. Or do you say, I owe everything I have and I want you to know him to Jesus. Like, he came with purpose. I'm just a witness. I just get to witness what God did. That's for us. And God will give us clarity. You and I sometimes think our purpose and calling is so much different. But it's one thing to be a, a witness to Jesus. I've said it this way all the time. To be a window to Jesus. People ought to look at our lives and see right through us to the one who is truly glorious. And God forbid 
We confess if we ever get in the way of that. And God gives us clarity in this, and he gives us clarity in our purpose, just like he did for John. And that we believe as children of God that he reveals himself through the word and shows us what his will is. He did that for John in this text. He said, John, here's your purpose. I will show you who's the one. John didn't know. Remember, John didn't know who is this, who is the one. And Jesus shows up. God says, here's my sign on him. You and I will know what God's will is in our life when we're in the word. When we're trusting the spirit and walking in the spirit, he will show us what to do. You and I sit here with many questions about life. What am I supposed to do? Well, generally, you're supposed to be God's witness if you know him. What are you supposed to do in specificity? God will reveal that to you. This is the will of God, to rejoice, to be thankful, to testify, to make disciples, all the things we know. Is your life doing that? The second thing is this. Because Jesus is the bridegroom, we can live for and hope for the future. That is a great promise to know that Jesus is the bridegroom, that he's coming back. And not only is he coming back, but he's preparing us now. He's washing us. There's a reference here in Ephesians 5 to human marriage, that the husband washes his wife with the cleansing, the washing of the word. Jesus is doing that to his people right now. He is preparing us in holiness and righteousness. So when we meet him, when we are called home, or when we go to see him first, we can be with him united at that marriage supper of the Lamb, his children. We can be in the presence of God because of his perfect life. We can look forward to that. We need to get ourselves ready for that and prepare for that. But my goodness, look at the hope here. However you came in here in fear and anxiety with sickness in your body or just wondering, I, I've, I've just been struggling in this for weeks and weeks. Life is hard. It is really, really hard. There are hard things. Hard, hard things. But this gives me hope that Jesus says, I'm going to call you home. But he asked the question of all of us, are you ready? Are you prepared for that? Because have you looked at me, and this is the third thing, as the lamb? You and I need to stop and ponder and relish the gospel. We come here week after week. And do you come here week after week and say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look what he did in my life. I could never atone for all that garbage. I could never, I could never save myself from all the sin that's raveled around my heart. I could never do that. But Jesus, out of nothing good in me, does that for me. He sheds his blood for me, takes my punishment. Do you stop and relish at the beauty of the gospel in that? Do you say, when you sing, do you look at the cross and say, I should be there, but because he's the lamb, because God's love and his goodness, I'm not there. Jesus has shed his blood, which washes me white as snow. He died in my place. He was my sacrifice, my substitute. That ought to guide us into deep repentance. When you see that, the beauty of the gospel, when you see Jesus as the lamb and say, I should be there. I should be damned to hell, dead in my sins, lost in my transgressions, but because God is good and he loves me, I'm not. That should drive us to our knees in thankfulness and repentance. Say, God, I need you again like I've needed you all my life. Have you responded in that way? And then finally, we can respond with all that we do as he and Jesus, the Son of God, with great worship and humility. Remember whom you and I serve. We serve a creator God 
a God who has called everything to exi- in his existence. We serve this Jesus who you look at chapter 1, all things were made through and for him. Without him, nothing was made. Nothing is good. That's who we serve. And he will open our eyes by his spirit to all that he wants for us. But we must decrease and he must increase. He is the son of the living God. When you meet Jesus like that, where I started today, you say in your life, I don't want to be the center of attention. I want Jesus to be all of that. You realize that all that you do when you walk out these doors should be done in humility. All that you do should never be, look what I did. Look how I'm growing. Look what God's doing in my life. You could say that, but sometimes again, we say, look what God's doing in my life because I'm letting him. All that you do when you walk out these doors should be done in humility in the way of Jesus, the servitude of Jesus. And John the Baptist knew that. He had every opportunity to claim to be the Messiah. He had every opportunity to say, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one. Like, maybe I should just, like, I'm not going to forfeit. I could take this for myself. He had every opportunity to say, yeah, my baptism, my baptism is what's going to save. All my ministry is what's going to save. He had every opportunity to say, I'm the son of God in his life. Look at me. And he does none of those things because he knows his calling. He knows his hope and his future. He knows what happens by Jesus's blood only. And he knows that he is not worth any of that. And he does everything with great humility. May God help us to learn from these truths in scripture to see Jesus simply who he is and who he claimed to be and what he did. And our response should be such. Let's pray. I invite the worship team up and we're going to respond to a reflective song to just let God stir your soul. Have I responded to Jesus the Messiah today? Have I, have I hoped in him as the bridegroom? Have I seen Jesus alone as the lamb, as the son of God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for your word, these rich lessons in scripture. Father, right when we start reading this, we think, oh, this is a section about John the, ba- John the Baptist. It would be easy for us to do that. But as John well knew, this little section is not about him at all. It's about the one he paved the way for. So, Father, help us in our own lives who all too often think it's about us. It's why we struggle when things happen to us the way they do, when life is unfair, when we struggle with sickness, when, when life doesn't go the way we want, when we don't like all the circumstances that have surrounded our life. It's simply because we do not see Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him and what he came to do. Father, help us as a people to learn from someone who could have taken all the glory for himself. But he looked at Jesus and said, I want you to see him. Help us to see him. Help us to get out of our self-pity in one extreme of all this like garbage that's happened and help us just to trust and hope in the Savior. Help us to get out of our arrogance and pride on the other side of the spectrum to, to realize we are not unworthy, we are not lovable, and yet you choose to do that because of your grace. And so, Father, humble us as a people. Draw us into repentance. Open our eyes by the power of the Spirit, we pray. In the mighty, saving, blood-shedding name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said. Why don't we stand together? I want to read this. We read it before, but perhaps it will make more sense to us. 
as you look at what God has done at the cross by sending his son Jesus to die in our place, we recall these words from Isaiah 40 when John said that he was going to prepare a place that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God wants to have you see that. He wants you to respond to the gospel. He wants to have you see that he can resurrect everything in your life that is broken. He can bring everything up to see it in its fullness and goodness of what Jesus wants to do in your life. But you have to respond. You have to see him as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, as the bridegroom who will take us home. Amen. I want to pray for us as we close our time together in song of praise. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus in our lives, no matter where we are or where we sit. Father, that we would see the goodness of Christ, that we would remove all this attention from ourselves and say, God, we want to see you. We want to worship you. We want to bow before you. We want you to change our hearts by the power of your spirit to see that you have a plan and purpose Father, that you love us, that you're good, and you want us to live for Jesus so other people can see your glory. Father, show us that. Show us our hearts. If we need to repent, that we repent. If we need to trust Christ for the first time today, I pray that people would know salvation this day is available only through Jesus Christ. Father, for us that are living lives on mission, may we continue to do it with hope that you're good, that this life is just but a vapor, a breath, and we will see you one day because of your resurrection. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.